Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. At the intersection of technology and fitness is Unplugged, a book authored by Dr. Andy Galpin and Phil White. In this episode, we'll discuss those complicated and often contradicting worlds. A strength coach's obligation is to improve performance, but that role is not as definitive as you may think. With the advent of technology and fitness, more and more coaches can be seen becoming reliant on devices ranging from wearables to contact power mats. As our guests discuss, these tools are just that. They cannot replace a deep understanding of the function for which these devices serve. Hear how you can implement the use of technology in moderation to complement your coaching, not replace it. This is episode 230. What is happening, Power Athlete Nation? You are at another episode of Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast. In and strength and, and conditioning. conditioning. Yeah, we are minus Luke, but that's okay because, uh, you know, we drop dead weight on occasion. And we're just acting, you know, seamless, fast, you know, high speed, low drag. So... We actually have uh, some service announcements. Today we're actually going to be out at Austin Startup Week talking about Wade's Army and hopefully making some connections for some corporate stuff. For those of you guys listening that don't know, Wade's Army is our 501c3 that helps to fight pediatric cancer, specifically neuroblastoma. And this is our fifth year and we're right in the middle of our big shirt drive just trying to raise some money to keep the fight going. So what else, Tex? Uh, Wade'sArmor.org, Power Athlete Symposium. Oh yeah, we got the Power Athlete Symposium coming up in December. Uh, second weekend in December, uh, amazing speakers. This is our end of the year uh, get together where we like to bring in and educate and inspire and inform. And uh, it's been a big success every year. So we're excited to bring it here to Austin. And uh, we got some amazing speakers and Tex was just out in Arizona with Dr. Tom and Dr. Christy. So they got a whole bag of tricks ready to come at you with uh, every piece of modality that um, money can buy. And I don't even know what it does, but neither do I No, nobody does. Not even him. <laughs> Sounds so, about right. But uh, without further ado, uh, we have some pretty amazing guests today. We have Dr. Andy Galpin. Andy, say what's up. Say what's up. What's up, guys? What's happening? And then Phil White. Phil, how you doing, buddy? Better than I deserve, my friend. How are you? Oh, good. Incredible. So, yeah. Um, so, what's going on? So, uh, I guess a mutual friend connected us, Phil. Um, Bare Naked Podcast. John, Luke, and I were guests on there, and then he reached out and said, well, you, you got to get this guy on. So Phil and I were able to connect, and then we, we were able to wrangle in Andy here. So I want to hand the baton to y'all to talk about who you are, uh, what your mission is, and then we have a couple books sitting on our desk here that John and I have read over the past couple weeks. So thank you for the books, and uh, why don't you all tell us about yourselves? Go, Andy. <laughs> all right. So uh, I'm Andy Galpin. I'm the the director for the Center for Sport Performance uh, out here in Cal State Fullerton. So I have a PhD in human bioenergetics, um, which means I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm a professor. I run our strength conditioning programs, our graduate and undergraduate programs. And, um, you know, I do, I do muscle physiology research, but performance-based stuff. So uh, we take muscle biopsies and we look at different training loads and types of training and seeing, trying to identify which or better if they are why what causes muscle to really adapt at the cellular molecular level um, but really under a training context so i still work with a lot of athletes directly uh, mostly combat sport athletes and olympic athletes but um, that's what we do so we do at the center for performance we do research that promotes sport performance we don't do disease treatment management prevention anything like that it's all about sport performance here brilliant um, 
Phil White, I'm the words guy. It's probably the best that could be said about me. Andy has said a lot worse, and justifiably so. Um, so the blurb, when not writing about himself in the third person, or indeed speaking in this case, Phil White likes to write books and get to work with some proper villains, um, Andy, Brian McKenzie, um, Dr. Kelly Starrett, and the like. And uh, yeah, we do some books. And so uh, another one called The 17 Hour Fast coming out in March, shameless plug alert. Um, that Andy contributed to um, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Frank Merritt, who, if you've read um, Unplugged, you know it's featured in that book. And yeah, we get together and we write some books. Nice. Well, uh, you know, Unplugged is kind of an interesting one as we started going through it. I mean, it's really just combating a lot of the things that we're seeing develop today. Can you guys kind of go into some of the research and some of the background in which you've gotten in um, to, you know, necessarily necessitate a book on this topic? Yeah, so the book was really a combination of myself, Phil, and Brian McKenzie, who um, I think most of you have heard of by now. Uh, and so Brian is a, is a coach. I'm really more of a scientist. And we sort of came at the same problem, which is people becoming over-reliant upon technology and their training. And that's not to say technology is bad. Uh, I, I mean, if you go through the book, it's clear that we're not saying that. But we want to have a better conversation about appropriately using technology in your training and not outsourcing your own physiology or your own coaching, um, relying upon these technologies. Because if you look at the research, whether you want to look at the accuracy, the validity, adherence, almost any metric, I think most people would be surprised at how ineffective a lot of these training technologies are. Um, so they can be extremely inaccurate, which is a problem. And even if they are accurate, they don't understand context at all, which is how I integrate these things um, technique they don't understand strategy they don't understand the training program all these other things so they're all problems the book came about then as a way to say hey look let's just make sure we're being aware and being conscious of, of how we're integrating these things and we're not just outsourcing all of our intelligence and our history and, and our backgrounds to what a piece of technology is thinking it's telling us yeah have the opportunity to go to a lot of major universities and one of my first um, D1 coaching experiences I had to deal with the uh, the Sparta jump mats so mm -hmm. I was talking to a young coach uh, probably about 27 coaching at the same time as me and he was all about these so he wanted the baseball SNC coach to take basically the whole budget for the year and invest in just one mat for the team yeah. and I wanted to talk more about it and kind of get his, his purpose right so uh, when we talk about purpose or application of training, we talk purpose, prudency, like uh, what's is it going to accomplish what it's supposed to do, and then practicality. When it comes to budget, this wasn't practical for, I guess, any other of the teams that I was working with, but baseball, sure, they could afford it. So he wanted it, and he wanted to do the assessments, get the printout for it, and once he gets the printout, say, like, oh, I improve athlete from point A to point B. So when he performs or misses a, a catch or doesn't gets called out or something on the baseball field, he could show to the sport coach, I did my job. I improved his performance. <laughs> and so I, I just didn't like that. So it, I, I kind of um, made it a mission to understand as a minimalist and then that would maximize the efficiency of the technologies. I think where people get into problems is they start letting the technology drive the training. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I can think of like Nintendo, for example. I mean, we started using mm -hmm. Nintendo pretty extensively, and we almost had people that started, you know, cheating the movement pattern or sh cutting it short or doing different things for Nintendo. 
And then the interesting thing is sometimes the fastest people or the people that got the best tendo numbers weren't the strongest people. And so then we realized that, you know, I mean, obviously there's you know, different, I guess, physiological types, different anthropometrical ratios. I mean, all these things go into like generating speed and force. But at the end of the day, if maximal strength is the goal, that might not be the way. And, um, you know, I, I, am, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Andy's seen this as well. But, uh, you know, you walk into, you know, Naval Special Warfare and some other places over on the East Coast and even West Coast, and they have, you know, these elaborate, you know, uh, machines to, you know, with cameras to measure, you know, speed and this and uh, a million different things. The problem is, is you're only as good as the person administering it or necessarily the athlete. And I think people just want information just for the sake of it. I mean, if anything, we've seen more information is worse. Look at the Internet. I mean, it seems like we've gotten worse in terms of training, like um, just a little example. I mean, uh, you know, we do some training programs on Train Heroic, and I put out one that had some 10s on the squats, and I wanted to see what people's 10 RMs were and be able to do some linear progression on some of this stuff, and people were losing their minds. And, uh, you know, uh, know, why are we doing all this high volume? What is it going to do? And I'm like, you realize that every strong power lifter on the history of the planet has at some point in their program done 10s. And I'm like, why, uh, you know, do you think that tens don't have, I mean, it's just, it's amazing how, uh, you know, people get really locked within these. And I mean, I'm sure you see it in the endurance community using training peaks. I mean, for them, the ability to generate force and their power meter is like their God. That's what they live for. Everything's fit on this. And, uh, you know, eventually you get to the point where, you know, what's your limiting factors Is strength? Is it technique? Is it ability? I think, uh, I think we're at a point now where, you know, it's almost like the, uh, the dog's leading the walker instead of the walker leading the dog. Do you agree, kind of? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head in terms of making sure we understand who's in charge. So we could go through a thousand technologies. Those are great examples of them. But the real point we say is, okay, when we have that in mind, that doesn't mean the technology is useless. It can be useful if we use it properly. So a better application would be use technology when you have a very specific question in mind. And so we, we were fortunate Tim Ferriss uh, contributed to the book and he put one of the sections he wrote, he said one of the biggest mistakes and the, the most frequent reason he came to wrong training conclusions was because he over collected data. So when you just bring in things, and this is like, this is research methods 101. Like you're taught this your first semester of, of, of any scientific classes. Like you don't just collect every ounce of data that's possible to collect. You only collect the data when you think you have a very specific hypothesis. I mean, this is sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, you're taught like, you think you have a problem. What is the potential problem? We'll identify that. And so what Tim said is actually one of his, I think, uh, maybe Phil, you correct. I think he had eight tips or something like that mm-hmm. for, for training. Um, and one of them was collect actually the least amount of data possible and use the least amount of technology possible to do that. And if you can make sure you put yourself boundaries like that, just like you said, John, like you can make sure that your, the training is being in front and that you're using technology to guide it, but it's not, you're not training because of the technology, because all those things you mentioned, it doesn't understand context. It doesn't understand any of those other factors like leverages or even what we say all the time. Like we used HRV as a great example. Sure. And uh, a couple of years ago, I remember talking to Cal Dietz and he was saying, 
uh, he's a strength coach at the University of Minnesota for a long time. He's actually going to be on our podcast in what, two weeks? But yeah, we try to get all the doctors and smart people on when Luke is gone. Yeah, well, that's that, that usually helps. But um, yeah, no, I, Perfect. I, I, I know Cal and we uh, we text back and forth. And yeah, no, yeah. no this is a good one because we actually had a, this exact conversation about it. So you probably know exactly the story I'm about to tell then. Yeah, no, and please tell it. It's, uh, I'm, I'm one of those people that loves to hear the same stories over and over again just because uh, I like them. And people are like, oh, you already told me that. I'm like, yeah, because it's fucking So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell the story as if it was my story. So then two weeks when he comes on and tells it, the audience could be like, he totally stole, told that story from Andy. I'm in. I'm in. So this is my story. Uh, no, but, but I was talking to him about HRV. And he's used HRV a lot. And he said, look, um, HRV is a good tool, but we have to understand context. So what ta- what training phase are we in? In other words, if you're in your six-week preseason training phase or something like that, or you're peaking, you're optimizing, and you wake up one morning with an HRV that's in a tank, well, then maybe you'll take a day off or a, a speed day or a backdrop day. But if you have that exact same HRV, when you're trying to induce adaptation and you're trying to induce overload, you might wake up with a crappy HRV and coach Cal will say, good, we're trying to induce stress right now. This is the point of this camp or this phase or this block or mesocycle or whatever he's in. So that's, that's where a good example of you are actually coaching, guiding the technology, not the other way around. And that's just one of the examples of saying, make sure we're really thinking through these things and don't just look at the app or the thing on your watch or the thing on your computer and let that determine everything you do. Well, it's the age old, you know, if, uh, if you want to apply super compensation, you have to dig yourself a pretty big hole. Right. I think that's what, uh, Cal and I talked about. I mean, he had a pretty interesting one and, um, I, I relate him, you know, after talking with uh, Joel Jameson, uh, mm-hmm. he sent me a unit and I started kind of playing with it and seeing if I could cheat the, uh, the results. And I mm-hmm. found that if I did, um, about 20 minutes of just uh, low endurance, like 70% heart rate cardio before bed, no matter what I did for my training, I would wake up in the green weird and it was the yeah the the active recovery stuff at night you know parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system whatever you want if you want to go do some contrast baths uh you know that was another one we were using ems as well so i was using ems and before i would do the ems i was taking you know doing some contrast baths to kind of wake up the tissue and then doing a little bit of aerobic work and regardless of what the training looked like i couldn't get it uh into the red and i mean we tried to dig as big a hole as we could do as much fucked up stuff as we could and it was like uh and then all of a sudden we did that for about three or four weeks and then stopped doing it. And then all of a sudden I was in the red again and we kind of went back and forth and figured out that um, I could, you know, me, but here, here's the problem. I mean, correlation is not causation. So then is it just specific to me? Was that something I was able to do? And I kicked it out to a few people that were able to replicate it. But for the most part, I mean, without a, a massive cross-sectional study, I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's just maybe an anecdotal deal. Well, I would say that if, if the third author here, Brian McKenzie was here, he would jump all over that. Uh, in support because the one of the other major problems is something and it's not hrv it doesn't matter it's not a pick on hrv and um but it's thinking that you can't change your own physiology sure. and you can so even if you woke up in the morning and it was in the tanks and well what happens if you go do some hot or cold therapy or do some breathing work or do a little bit of exercise and you think that won't change after a few minutes well i'll tell you this i mean i was always told a couple uh you know um, you know, in football, uh, they always have these like, you know, little cliches. And one of them is, uh, you know, you never want to go out and play against a guy with a bad hangover. And, uh, <laughs> when I came in the NFL, there was a deal where the older guys were like, well, you got to go out and drink so much on Friday night that you're still hungover on Sunday. And I asked them, I was like, why? And they're like, usually when you're a little hungover and you feel a little sick, you one, you're not concentrating as much on what's going on around you. And you're also, uh, exceptionally unagreeable, which uh, definitely lends <laughs> to the job. 
So, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, somebody that'll take advice from my elders, we went out and we get fucking smashed on Friday nights. And I played the majority of my games with some form of a hangover. And uh, John Runyon was even worse than me. But um, because of that, you were fucking in a bad mood. And I never heard the crowd and never really knows what was going on around me. So, I mean, that's the, uh, you know, you would say based off of the heart rate variability and all this technology that this was, you know, completely opposite of... Um, what needs to happen but i mean think about how many times i'm sure you guys have walked into the gym feeling terrible and you start warming up and end up hitting some of your best days you know it's just i, I you know when i uh, was in college uh, my strength coach todd rice had a deal where we used to come in and we used to test um you know our grip strength and vertical jump and we had all these little matrix to kind of see how ready we were and eventually it came to the point where like i don't give a fuck just get in there and do it you know we can be as jiggy as we want but not every day are you going to feel good and those are the days you got to perform so i think uh the one thing we've noticed is uh, the more information, the more paralysis. And it almost uh, lends claim to this, you know, iPhone generation of people. We have so many apps, we have so many choices, so much information available to us that sometimes um, it's given too much, too many options. There's too many training methods. I mean, it's just, it just seems to, I, I think it's regressing in a lot of ways. Yeah, because. Yeah, it's, go, ahead, go ahead, Andy. No, it's all right. I was going to say that the major point that it does is it actually it makes you start paying more attention to the technology rather than your own internal self. And you're not feeling these things anymore. And so as you become more and more aware of what it feels like to tell the difference between, are you in a bad mood or are you really fatigued? Are you a little bit sleep deprived or are you actually chronically overtrained or needing a day off? And you can't really tell these things if you're not really paying attention to how you actually feel because you're, you're relying upon a technology to tell you how you quote unquote feel. And th those things just take years, if not decades, to start to figure out. And if you if you start the game off by never paying attention to those things, you're never going to ever develop those things, and you're going to be screwed later on, whether that means you as an athlete or you as a coach. Um, if you start your coaching career completely reliant upon GPS technology and HRV to figure out if an athlete's overtrained, I mean, you're dead in the water when that technology goes wrong or, or you don't have it around. Uh, like, you, you're screwed. You're never going to be able to figure that out. Well, and also most people have never pushed themselves to the point of severely overtraining. No. And, um, you know, that's something, I mean, I, I like uh, overtraining is this strange boogeyman that I hear people talk about. And I know very few people have actually experienced true overtraining to the point where, you know, you almost fuck yourself up. And, uh, you know, that only comes from kind of pushing that envelope. And I think people are more afraid. I mean, I, I've never in my life heard more people be like, well, aren't I going to be overtrained? And I'm like, good. I hope yeah. so at some point. You know, the one thing I did find the irony on your book is having Tim Ferriss in it, saying is he's the king of the hack. I yeah. mean, before him, I mean, I, I'd never heard the term like biohacking and hacking and everything from his four-hour body was this hack. So to see him in this book was kind of, you know, coming full circle and some irony, uh, you know. And also I'm amazed that people take training advice from Tim, seeing as he's not a very good athlete, he's not very strong, he's not all that good looking, he doesn't have a good hairline. So I'm always kind of <laughs> laughing a little bit with that, where I, you know, as I'm going through it, I'm like, dude, this is the guy and who spawned the Dave Ashbury's of the world, where you know you can lay in bed and but... just do fucking EMS all day, and you know, uh, fast and drink butter coffee, and think you're somehow going to fucking ramp up performance. I think the thing with Tim though is that with him, um, he's very different from some of the people in this space, and one of the reasons for this is that he is very intentional about what he does. And it's scoreboard, right? Like he is very deliberate, as Andy said. He 
he goes into something with a goal in mind and he uses the technology to ask better questions. And as Andy talked about earlier, it's just one coach in, uh, you know, one, one tool in the coach's toolbox. And I also think that, um, he, he has a lot of imitators, but I think the difference between Tim and the others is that, or most of the others is that, uh, he really does know what he's doing and his, there are so many demands on his time that when he's talking about, okay, this worked for me, this didn't. Example, I mean, what he said about the, the greatest piece of fitness technology I've ever used is a pen and a notepad. Well, that's the same as Dan John. I mean, if you talk to Dan John and ask him that question, he would say the same thing. And Dan has, you know, these shelves of workouts going back to the 60s, I believe, and for the same reason, because Tim says, hey, well, hey, if, you know, I, I tore, you know, tore a hammy or something and I wanted to come back and, you know, try try to get a better PR, you know, or get back close to my PR and the deadlift. Well, I know that I can go back and find this eight, 10, 12 week block when I was deadlifting and, and I can recreate that and um, go with it. And so I think a lot of what he says is kind of old wisdom. It's common sense and it, it's very intentional. Whereas I think some of the other if people you mentioned are, uh, you're, you're, are, are pretenders. Uh, that sense is anything but common these days and it's like we've learned at the internet no but uh the one thing which is interesting for tim is um you know he's definitely the trend center and then he has these other guys kind of jump on but the one thing i will appreciate about him is he uh he has no problem saying hey i did this and now i'm doing this and i'm constantly in the search and the hunt for what the best information is but i mean i think tom Furman was on our podcast and uh he made a point he said if, if you can manage a spreadsheet i can get you stronger and get you in shape and, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, progressive loading and, you know, being able to do a little bit more than the next day and how to monitor this. I mean, it just, it goes back to, uh, you know, and, you know, like, especially for a guy who's working in the lab, like, um, like Andy, you know, I mean, everything's measured, everything's, uh, you know, understood to the point of saying, hey, you know, what did we do? How do we replicate? And I think most people don't really take that approach They just do like the, what I, what I laugh and I call the shotgun approach with supplements. Hey, my buddy said this supplement made him feel good. Cool, I'm gonna take it. Then I don't feel anything. And then you're like, well, what basis do you have to know for that supplement? Is there any uh, testing? Do you have any blood testing? Any deficiencies? Any reason why that might be good? No, just my buddy said it would go. It would feel pretty good. So I mean, it's just uh, you know, and this is something we run into over and over and over with uh, with training is people just um, you know, I mean, and maybe like I said, maybe it's just information paralysis. Just too many options out there. But, um, you know, if somebody comes to us, for example, and they want to get stronger, it's a very easy, um, I mean, I don't mean easy in terms of uh, easy effort, but a very simple process. And a lot of times the, the most simple processes are by far the best. And I think what we're seeing is an overcomplication of training. And I mean, that's the one thing I, I, I mean, well, more than one thing, but something I appreciate about the book, like simplicity is best. And when in doubt, choose a simple option. Yeah, I mean, it's we would agree entirely. It's it's with the supplement thing. It's it's the equivalent of doing like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hop on Power HQ uh, training program for four weeks, and I'm gonna hold and jump over and do Caldeitsis for three weeks, and I'm gonna integrate some triphasic in there, and then while I'm at that, I'm gonna do some gymnastics and tack that on and do some hybrid. You're like, what the hell are you doing? We call that and you're, the and you're shocked. Program. Yeah, then you're shocked that you need uh, an HRV to figure out that you're not hitting your goals. I, I always joke with Cal. I'm like, man, you're the. Uh, um, I love the fact that on your triphasic book, you tried to claim that you invented heavy eccentric training. <laughs> and I fucking busted his balls when I saw him at Summer Strong. I was like, dude, this is great. I'm like, I told people I invented the overhead squat and the ring push up. You invented eccentrics. I should have gone bigger. Yeah. And he was pretty. He's pretty funny, dude. So he had a good sense of humor about it. Um, you know, but uh, deserves it. Yeah. So, uh, so what kind of stuff are you working on? I mean, I know. Oh, internet connection down. 
Shit. Okay, is it up? Andy, you got us? You got us? Yeah, I got you a little okay. bit low here, but I got you now. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so, like, can, um, I mean, the book's great, but, uh, you know, the fact that you're in a performance lab out in Fullerton, I mean, can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about, um, you know, what type of things you're doing today and really, like, the, uh, you know, what you're primary focusing your work on right now? So, we, we, um, the main thing that we do is muscle biopsy. So, we're trying to answer a lot of these training questions from that cellular level, or at least, um, try to get some understanding of the differences. So I'll give you the easy example. The reason I got in this field is I remember first lifting when I was 15 years old or 13 or, or whatnot. And, and first understanding the difference between things like three sets of 10 and 10 sets of three, and then being like, Oh, that's really awesome. And then I remember asking the, the, you know, the, the faculty, the physiology professors, like, well, why is that actually happening that way? And I never got an answer that I actually liked. And I remember thinking like, you've actually never done this before. And yet you're going to like, and then, okay, where's the research at? And then diving in the research and finding like, well, there's actually not any research here. So we're all just saying the same thing over and over and over again, but no one's actually figured this thing out. No one's actually looked at muscle because we love to give all the credit to the nervous system. It's like, wow, the heavy stuff is neurological and the other stuff is muscular, which is complete horseshit. Yeah, no. Okay. That's... And I'm like, that's not how it works. So I'm like, well, I want to go and, in a vacuum, even though the world wants to believe it does like, Oh, if I do a one to three reps and that's just training my nervous system. And you're like, you don't think there's any hypertrophy in that. You don't think there's any yeah. muscle building in that. Or, or like what now we figured out is, is we isolate the muscle fibers and we specify or specifically do things on fiber type. So we've probably done more work in the area of fiber type transition than anybody else. And we even take single fibers. So one, muscle fiber at a time with the tiny tendrils in that independent of hypertrophy so your your cells can get stronger and faster and contract with more velocity with no change in hypertrophy at all and independent of the neurological system or the connective tissue so that's a lot of the research we've done the fiber type changes uh, very rapidly in both directions uh, which is something i've been shouting for decades and finally people are listening uh, so we have all those things going on. We need to take that stuff into consideration then when we're making training prescriptions. And I'll give you a couple of, of very specific examples. Um, my postdoc, Irene Tobias, just in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at um, on one muscle cell at a time, we've been looking at the post-exercise anabolic window. I'm sure you're all familiar with that, right? The idea that you know, you got to eat right after workout. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff with this. And I've read everything from you know, anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes to an hour, you have this anabolic window where if you consume this, if not, you get locked out, which I kind of think is some bullshit. Um, I think there is some validity to it, but I also always wondered about cortisol as, you know, people talk about cortisol almost being like this, like, uh, you know, demon, this evil thing that, you know, you don't want cortisol. And I've always said, you know, chronically high cortisol uh, is, is a problem, but acute cortisol, I mean, if you think about a stress hormone, wouldn't it make sense that there would be some type of uh, effect? I mean, then we've played with it both ways, had people eat immediately after and also extended out two hours trying to see if maybe there was an effect. I mean, even though I know cortisol binds up receptors for, for testosterone, but I always think there's got to be something to this a little bit more. Well, so it's actually the exact same answer that I gave about 30 minutes ago. It depends on the goal. It depends on what phases Caldeats all over again. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to maximize hypertrophy? You're trying to maximize endurance because that actually requires a separate prescription for post-exercise anabolic window. What phase are your training are you in? 
this changes the answer. Uh, are you working out in the morning, fasted? Are you working out in the afternoon after three meals? Like this all changes that answer. And people just want to give these stupid blanket, well, this is true or it's not true, where all those things come into play because exactly as you mentioned, there's a section in the book that we talk about, like, are you adapting or are you peaking? Because you're not doing both at the exact same time. And this is another fantastic example of that. Thinking that cortisol is bad for you is sophomoric. Thinking inflammation is bad for you is juvenile. Like these things are what cause adaptation. How the hell does your body know to adapt if it doesn't know it's been stressed? And those are your stress signals. We have to take, get away from personifying chemicals and personifying hormones. Like all these ones are good and these ones are bad. Well, it's kind of like food. people do that all the time. You know, there's good foods and your bad foods. And you're like, dude, technically food is not evil. Um, there's no, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, see, see some of the crap that Andy got after being on Joe Rogan's show um, from the keto folks, right, Andy? Maybe you can oh, talk about, a little bit about that. Well, carbs, well, so-and-so says all carbs are evil and therefore we must believe them because that's yeah. our guru who we bow down to and we're this narrowed and blinkered that we can't accept the maybe a possible different scenario, as Andy said, dependent on context. But no, you could you riff on that for a minute, Andy. You guys are straight up allies on our deal. Um, you know, I mean, there are certain points in the year where a ketogenic diet is a useful tool. And I try to explain this to somebody. Um, you know, if you eat it, in a, there, there are certain people that need to eat in a ketogenic state. I, I know a guy who's, you know, 60 years old and had seizures as a kid and is eating a ketogenic diet for, you know, 45 years. And for him, it works. Um, do I cycle through a ketogenic diet? Yeah. When I played in the NFL, I real, I, you know, I learned fairly on uh, early by, from Mauro de Pasquale, who did my diet in like 99. That if you eat a lower carb diet and you have ketones, it'll be more protective to the brain, and you know help you recover better during uh, you know chronic impacts. And so during the football season, I ate a ketogenic diet, and in the off season, I ate more carbs because I needed the carbs to put on muscle and size. It's you know, and that's where I go through, and I see a lot of these guys that are you know so big on the keto stuff, and I'm like, dude, eat some carbohydrates. Not only will you look a little bit better, but you'll probably feel a lot better. And people get this euphoric thing from from it. And I'm like, you know, there's a reason that Morrow never sunk everybody into a ketogenic diet. He would always cycle it through and do carb cycling because he knew that being able to, the, you know, the big swings back and forth, put on size and muscle and help people with performance. And I know when he skinned my diet for uh, when I was playing, there was, you know, regular carb refeeds and kind of went through and it was um, extremely beneficial. But the problem goes back that people want this definitive answer all the time. They want this, uh, yeah. you know, well, I, I just tell me what to do. And like, uh, you know, Andy was saying, there really isn't any definitive. It's uh, where are you within the training? Who are you as an individual? So I'd like to stay with that. Where are you in the training? So, Andy, I did listen to your uh, interview with Joe Rogan, and I, I picked up on a similar thing that we teach, and what we teach is the life cycle of an athlete. And one of the biggest mistakes that we found that coaches make is misapplying the program. So taking a trained athlete's program and applying it to a novice, or the reverse, right. or taking professional to novice. So in your experience, do you have any um, research backing up or tools that you apply to identify where an athlete is on their, their life cycle? Yeah, so that's a great question, and that's that's not something that we do at all. Um, I wish I could give you and and I could tell you about my training experience, but research-wise, it's it's I don't know anybody that's done anything like that, and that's something that we don't do. But it's something I consider, of course, when I work with with athletes, um, is paying attention to those things. But yeah, man, I wish I could say we have research. We don't. You know the uh, well. I mean, just kind of what we found is that um, you know, and. This was kind of interesting. When I first got involved with CrossFit, I had people ask me about my training program. You know, what are you doing for your training? And I'd like to give it a shot. And I remember telling somebody, I'm like, why would you think that my training 
would produce the same results for you that it does for me. And it came from this idea yeah. that, you know, uh, you know, with CrossFit, you know, uh, just, you know, do what the best is doing and you'll somehow magically kind of come up to their level. And I'm like, dude, the level of adaptation and my level of training uh, is ultra specific for what I need based off of 20 years of doing this professionally for a living. Like, why would you think that, you know, you, you have yeah. two years of experience lifting weights and not and when I say lifting weights, I mean involved with barbells, not really lifting weights because randomly cycling in a five by five or a three by three or something isn't really strength training. That's just a fuck, a, uh, what would we call it? Fuck around where, um, you know, I mean, to actually follow a training program and drop it in becomes, um, you know, something else. So, I mean, that was, uh, the first time a lot of people had really heard that statement. And I just remember, you know, the, uh, you know, from college, I think what's strange is, um, uh, people get, uh, so caught up. I mean, whether it be like a ketogenic diet or training and they want to believe that this is just the only path to get there. And, uh, yeah. You know, well, it's a stupid as saying like, would you ever think it's a smart idea to go on one training cycle, one lifting program the rest of your life? No. Like, well, then why would you do that with nutrition? Well, that's another one. And uh, it makes equally stupid sense. Uh, something that I observed and dude, uh, I've, I'll tell you, I'd, I'd love to read more about this, but I can't really find anything is the idea of periodizing your diet as you age. Oh yeah. That's out there. Um, I, you want a name? Yeah. Louise Burke, B U R K E at Australia, Australian sports Institute. She's been doing this for, I mean, she published that first nutrition periodization paper probably 10 or 15 years ago. She's presented it all over the country. She's fantastic. Her work is great. In fact, uh, she already, she, she's provided specific numbers uh, based on weight gain, weight loss, muscle gain, um, types of the year. And now I don't agree with her exact percentages anymore, but I, I, whatever, I think it's like, it's generally very, very good. Well, the, the thing I kind of noticed was um, as you age, I think your ability to process carbs kind of goes down. Yeah. And um, I, I just found that with, uh, you know, when I was younger, I mean, geez, uh, you know, at certain points he could eat, you know, six, nine hundred a thousand grams of carbohydrates, but also was training at such a high level. Now, as I'm older, if I ate like that, I would feel not only lethargic and not necessarily blow up, but just feel really lethargic and kind of just tired. And I yeah. kind of made this um, interesting analogy when somebody asked me, they're like, well, how could that be? And I'd be like, think about when you were 18 or 22 and you'd go out and you'd binge drink and you'd wake up the next morning, feel great, pop out of bed, eat some breakfast and go to the gym. At 40, you think you can do that? And they're like, no, if I did that at 40, I'd be fucking dead for five days. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it goes back. And I think that was a too simplistic and you know, kind of a, just a funny analogy I used on one of my guys. But I'm like, think about like, uh, you know, what you could do in your 20s, you can't do in your 40s. So why would you think that training, you would think diet and everything else kind of fits within that? And um, yeah, you know, you have well, it's probably it, there's probably a, a scientific explanation for that in sense of cellular respiration and, and metabolism. So the, the baseline amount of energy you're kicking out throughout the day is, is far lower at that age. So you just don't have, when we look at fat and carbohydrate primarily playing the role of providing energy, well, if you overindulge on one of those two things, um, protein is a bit separate, and your basal physical activity is down, uh, your resting metabolic rate, if you want to call it that, is down. Well, you're just going to, you don't have as much room, wiggle room with those extra calories to handle. So you're probably just going to absorb a lot more of those and it's not going to be nearly as productive you're just not nearly as resilient and you're far more sensitive so you're much more aware of like when you're 20 you don't even realize it when you feel like shit you have no concept because you're just far more concerned about chasing girls or boys or whatever so like those are all things that are playing into it and i would agree like you just you just don't have the wiggle room uh, as you start to age a little bit um you gave the analogy of training earlier and texas is what you brought up with uh, what i said in rogan it's like, well, if you want to try out NASCAR, 
and like you wouldn't just jump in and be like, oh, all right, well, what's uh, what's this NASCAR driver doing for for his driving? I'm just gonna hop in and do that. Like you would crash the first fucking turn. Like you would crash the first turn. So like, why would we think we can do that? Um, we we need to do what that person did when they were their your training age. It's a long term development, and people often don't pay attention to the difference between specificity and variation. Right? Specificity is very, 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 very good for getting very good in that moment, but it's not necessarily great for long term development because you end up with holes. So that's what we have to pay attention to: is is are you really trying to maximize your back squat in the next six days? In the next six weeks, are you trying to make sure that you can still squat five years from now? Because if you pay attention to that, I promise you, if you're squatting consistently for five years, you're going to be stronger in the long run than you are if you just worry about getting as strong as possible the next eight weeks, eight weeks, and you blow out your hamstring or your knee or your, your herniated disc or something silly like that. Well, the, the other one, too, is um, people forget that, uh, and you know, we run into this way too often, is people always want to look at the world's best athletes for training programs. Little did they know that, um, you know, we run into this with NFL players. I mean, you know, I want to know, uh, you know, what's J.J. Watt doing for his training? What's this guy doing? And I'm going to yes. do that. And you're like, why would you think that a guy who's a genetic freak is, I mean, when you look at the high-level professional sports, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, and I, dude, I used to joke that uh, they could go in and basically just beat the snare drum for 30 minutes a day and they're going to get bigger and stronger. So you take yeah. the world's best athletes, you take this kind of, you know, I mean, a uh, form of Darwinism in a lot of ways where, you know, the, uh, you know, basically natural selection and, you know, only the strong survive to get to this point of this pinnacle place. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's, you know, genetics, geography, opportunity, skill, luck, all these things go in. And then you think that, you know, a guy who, you know, maybe didn't start on his high school football team, if he does that program, then that's going to reap the same rewards. And I'm like, dude, you almost have to train within your, you know, genetic confines who you are, what your exposures yeah. are, what your adaptations, what neuromuscular pathways you've built as a kid. I mean, all these things yeah. are key factors, but the problem is, is that people don't want to believe that stuff because they yeah. want to, you know, think, hey, if he could do it, I can somehow work my way into this hard work will get me there. Yeah, it's a logical fallacy called appeal to authority, which is to say, like, I'm going to do this because this person did it who was really good or this person coached somebody who was really good. All right, so you see this new coach pop up and it's like, wow, I'm going to do whatever that coach says because that person trained a b or c well they may not actually know what they're doing because they actually trained with an elite athlete or coach an elite athlete so that like you said that elite athlete might have been phenomenal independent of that coach's talent or lack of talent so that necessarily doesn't that doesn't necessarily tell you if they're if they're good or not at all and like you want even more evidence of this uh, just take jj watt okay i don't know jj at all but i guarantee you jj is not training right now how he trained when he was 18 like i promise you he's not like you wouldn't it doesn't even he work for to. him when he, he tried to, and he ended up rupturing his back. Yeah, So okay. he like went out to a cabin and was trying to do all the stuff that he did when he was a kid, and he ended up rupturing his back. So he yeah. had back surgery, and then he came out, and I think this Sunday he, he cracked his uh, oh, yeah, he fractured his tib, uh, tibial plateau, yeah. which is a uh, nasty fucking injury in terms right. of football. An interesting part of that is he was training with his little brothers, so maybe that was the right training at the time, and now both of them are doing well in the NFL. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, like we've seen this with high level sprinters. I mean, you know, you take a, you know, like Charlie Francis was the Mm -hmm. the king of saying, I just look for the fastest guy because I know I can make him faster. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, his whole deal was, uh, you know, I believe my system works, but like if you don't have, I mean, and the same goes at Westside Barbell. I mean, Louis Simmons is like, you know, if you can't squat 800 or 1,000 pounds, I don't even want to talk to you because you, you know, if you haven't got to that point, you're obviously, but I can get you uh, on that top, top level. So, I mean, it just comes down to this idea of uh, uh, people being able to identify who they are and where they fit within kind of the training paradigm. Well, look at Jimmy Radcliffe at Oregon. 
right? Yeah. So Jimmy Radcliffe is, is one of the best guys in plyometrics and speed for a long time. Was up there for 20, 30 years. Just retired last year, and then Oregon had that big training fiasco, right, with the new guy they brought in. But look at him. Like, there's a reason why Oregon was the fastest team in the country for 20 years. Part of it was because Jimmy's phenomenal, but a lot of it is because they recruited the fastest athletes they could possibly find in the country. <laughs> so it's like you have to consider both of those. Um, so I, I've been thinking a lot about Oregon football and Chip Kelly in particular. And Really? Why? Yeah, yeah hear seriously. Me hear me out. Hear me out. I fucking hate Oregon. Be, oh, well, Thank I, you. God, yes. Yeah. So I'm a Berkeley guy. Are you throw, kidding me? Throw the personal opinion out. But Go, you dub. I think this is purely from observation. And I, I've, I've met Radcliffe and heard him speak, and so I've I just been processing that. But I think Chip Kelly created an illusion of speed. All right. So average average football play, 7 to 12 seconds. Average time between each play, 60 seconds. So what Chip Kelly did was essentially run a play every 14 seconds. So training camp for his athletes was representative of the offensive they're going to run. So they were busting their ass, and they got in football shape. They got Oregon offense shape. So then they step onto the field against other Pac-12 or, you know, the, the first four games that don't really matter, and they killed. They crushed everyone. So for the first couple of years, he had his uh, guys that he inherited and they were in the best Oregon football shape, and they were torching people, creating an illusion of speed because they were able to replicate their abilities. Maybe it wasn't the best, you know, stopwatch, win a 100-meter dash race one time, but it was the replication. And then over time, he was able to then recruit speed because it appeared fast, mm. and then he had it, and that's when they had their golden year. So it, in my opinion, well, it changed the game. Yeah. Yeah, even well, even Radcliffe has said before uh, that like what people don't understand is the reason they won a lot of the times like they didn't necessarily win the first quarter, but they always won the third and fourth quarter is because they had that specific conditioning that other teams didn't have. Mm -hmm. That's what Saban got all pissed about uh, and like trying to make sure that like run those plays every 14 seconds was illegal is because he realized we're not in shape for that type of play. And so, like you said, their repeated speed ability, their ability to maintain, say, at 90 percent or 85 percent of their peak speed was maintained over the fourth quarters where the rest of them fell far below that. So by the time they got to the end, they were far faster because other teams were so tired. They said that Jimmy said that all the time. He always talked about his speed conditioning stuff and how like, that's what actually won them most of their games. Yeah. So, well, I've, uh, I've never heard like, um, so most teams, whether in college, whatever it is, always talks about this, like fourth quarter is ours mentality that we're going to own the fourth quarter. We're going to be in better shape. I've never heard anybody ever say, you know what? We're going to win the third quarter. You know what? We don't want to be in good shape at the end. Well, of have you thing. met Chip Kelly? Have I met Chip Kelly? Uh, no, I've never met Chip Kelly. Well, I don't know what he said. At if he I'm, said that or not, but I, he might have. I'm pretty fucking sure that most teams are like, "Hey, we're a fourth quarter team." I've never. I mean, just in terms of football, fucking cliches. There, yeah. I, I, I always wanted to joke around. I'm, I'm waiting for the one coach to be like, "You know what? Fuck the fourth quarter. We're going to win the third quarter." And that's how we're going to dominate this thing. No, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't. Like yeah. I, every meeting I've ever sat in, from Andy Reid to Belichick to, to Dick Vermeil, every one of them always talked about, you know, to win this game, we have to be able to be able to run the ball in the fourth quarter. We have to be able to close the game out. We have to be able to punish a person. I mean, dude, uh, if you ever watch um, any of the, you know, I mean, you probably didn't. You're probably too young. But when I played, as soon as the, uh, if we were on the field and the whistle blew for the changing from the third to fourth quarter, Wherever we were, wherever we were, we would take off in a, in a sprint as fast as we could to get to the line on the new one and try to run past the D lineman and be like, let's go, let's go, and scream at him. And then these guys are thinking, like, fuck, these guys have already been out here for two and a half hours. 
why does this dude have so much energy to sprint past him? Now, regardless if I was tired or not, I was never going to let those guys see me walk. So I, I think um, the like the idea of uh, you know paying lip service to it, like you know I'm sure every coach says it, but then to actually put a program in place that's going to develop that type of deal, and then at the end of the day, once you've trained for it in the off season, to actually favor it and do it in practice. Because unfortunately, you know, you only get, uh, you know, let's say in, high, in what college, 10, 11, 12 opportunities to play in a game in the NFL. You get, you know, 16, a couple preseason and postseason. So the problem is, is that you get into this specific level of conditioning based off of how you practice within, you know, practice tempo. And the one thing that was very clear with uh, Chip Kelly's deal was the practice tempo was so fast. Mm -hmm. um, now, here was the bigger problem. Uh, the fucking NFL guys hated it. <laughs> and he tried to implement that at the Eagles, and it fucking didn't go well for him. Or, they, or the 49ers. Yeah, or the 49ers. So the idea comes down to, you know, fuck him. We're not going to do it. So I always wonder if you get into, like, But you I'm know, looking at the performance perspective, not the guy. I don't care about the offense, but when we talk about, and I'm, I am against 100% the conditioning test. It's, per, it's the illusion of preparation. It means nothing. So I don't want well, to implement that because there's no have, transfer over. You have to have a conditioning test because you have to have a boogeyman. No. Waiting. I'm telling you. That's uh, poor coaching. They, well, it, it is. But, like, you know, you're talking about the difference between, uh, you know, dream state and practicality. You have to tell people you got to show up to pass conditioning test on this day or you will not get to play. But that's that's fear. You're striking fear into them. That's Fear, poor coaching. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell you. One day you're going to realize that fear is by far one of the is the best motivator on the planet. But the, more I the fear <laughs> of losing, the fear of not performing to do it. I don't know. It, so, Andy, you work with fighters, and I, I'm sure it, it's an individual athlete approach versus a team perspective. I'm just I'm, I'm only used to team. That's my experience coaching. Yeah. Um, how how do you build into the individual? kind of, I guess, mental plus training and all those factors. Well, the, the difference here is, you know, like I played college football as well, and we had to do those similar conditioning tests. And like, it was, it was a bit of a joke because it was so easy for the most part that unless you just really were an idiot, you would pass it and you would just time it out. So you figure like you cross the line at the time the buzzer goes off or half a second before every single time so that you finish with the least amount of exertion possible. And it was fatiguing, but it was tiring. But it's nothing you were scared of unless you're a freshman. You're just like panicked. Uh, but it didn't mean anything outside of that. So it wasn't just a very, it wasn't a very good use of time or anything. But that's because we're trying to imp implement this across 100 guys on a squad. With a fighter, though, it's one on one. So we, we approach them completely different. Um, some of the, the athletes I work with, I, I work with males, I work with females, and some of them are, are, are the type of people who need to hear that everything's great and you're a fantastic champ and this is perfect and you're going to dominate and and i have to relieve all their fears and the other ones i have to do the opposite where i have to continually remind them like like this guy is going to defend your takedown you're going to get tired he's better at this like you've got to be perfect and and that's actually what gets him in the right spot so i have the ability with these one-on-one -on -one sports to really tailor how i interact with them based on how I think they need it and at that moment, which you just simply can't do uh, with 100 people at a time. And neither is there an app that will tell you, based on their personality test, what to do. So again, it comes back to context, right? Yeah. Well, maybe you're onto something, Phil. I think that sounds like a business opportunity. Freaking. Uh... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We reverse engineer this thing, right? Yeah. And, yeah, get plugged. That's the next book. 
yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be pl- it wouldn't it would just be plugged, you guys have a book right but how to use training modalities and how to use all these technologies yeah context context doesn't matter actually yeah we're just going to say the exact opposite and we'll just see which we're, we're running an a b test that's actually yeah. coming out in january right Andy? <laughs> i was just up i was up at um, my buddy jimmy bagley's at san francisco and they're doing a lot of work with virtual reality gaming stuff and they're looking at metabolic energy and all these things and so I was playing this VR sparring game. So I was like boxing sparring and I got this headset on and like the discovery channels filming all these things. And my buddy was like, I'm totally taking a photo of right in, of, of you right now. And I'm going to post this on the Instagrams, like totally plugged in. Like the unplugged guy is so plugged in. I mean, I was literally like a cord running from my head back in. I was just like, fuck you. Like, don't do it. Dude, uh, you know yeah. what though? It's kind of, um, like uh we did this whole deal with lights and i remember we had like uh there was a light board and when the lights would flash you had to touch and it was like for hand speed and they Mm -hmm. they said you know you can develop your ability to react faster um the funny thing about it was um for me at least like i always had good hand speed that was like uh you know comes from you know boxing and you know just Mm -hmm. a lot of the the combat stuff i did as a kid and so we get in there and we're doing all the light touching and um you know my brothers and i for years our favorite game was bloody knuckles and hot hands (laughs) <laughs> and then uh, also juggling was another one. I remember my brother told me when I was a kid I had to join the circus because I would never be able to do anything. So I learned to juggle. So between <laughs> like juggling, fighting, and then all like the uh, just sitting on car rides uh, where we weren't really allowed to listen to the radio or read because um, we all you know got car sick, so we just play hot hands. So all of a sudden I, I get in a situation where um, you know we're having to touch these lights and I'm just fucking striking these things, and the guy's like, "Oh, you ever done this?" And I'm like, "No," uh, but you know I mean if you show me something, I got pretty good reaction time and. This is what I'm able to do. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of gave this, like, everybody should be able to increase at a certain rate. And the one thing that was funny was the people that were good at it day one were the people that were good at it farther down the line. If you suck day one, you could only marginally get better. And it just yeah. was kind of funny that it would, like, I didn't see anybody that was awful day one that, you know, by day 20 was able to fucking kill it. You know, people, yeah. people almost... Uh, Either they had that neurological wiring uh, to be able to, you know, see all that and be able to do this. And, um, you know, I didn't need any lights to tell me that I knew I could put my hand wherever I wanted. As soon as I saw the flash, I knew where to put it. And, uh, you know, it just it goes back to I think we're constantly looking at these uh, different ways to kind of bring people up or do this or test. And at the end of the day, it's like the world's best athletes are the world's best athletes for a reason. And I think a lot of these training things would, um, you know, you're showing guys in their mid-20s and 30s. So I'm like, I think you need to show it to these kids when they're six or seven years old. And, you know, what type of things are you doing? And, um, you know, that's kind of my deal in terms of being able to uh, provide a lot of these uh, opportunities and information to a younger crowd so they don't have to make a lot of the mistakes. Because it's yeah, like- and also that you can get better at just touching lights on a light board, right? And it has absolutely no bearing on game day. And if you guys had Fergus on, he could rant about this for 20 minutes, and rightly so. Um, And really, he talks about how, you know, at Michigan, for example, what Coach Harbaugh is trying to do is create realistic experiences that actually have some bearing on game day. And really, a historic example would be with John Wooden. And there was no, you know, no necessarily science behind it. He just knew that it worked. And that if you wanted guys to get better at shooting free throws in a game scenario, do it when you've, you know, close at the end of practice, when you've been running them to death for two hours. And obviously Coach Wooden had every minute down, right? And every minute was intentional. And so he knew there was no sense in just saying to a guy, go stand on that basket, you take 53 throws, then your body, you know, 
this guy takes 53 free throws, even that, even a game-specific skill, that had very little bearing on the game in the sense of doing it in the context of the moment. And so with the light board thing, or even some of these visual training things now, you know, oh, it's going to make you more aware, you know, in the game. Is it, or is it just going to make you better at doing that one specific thing with that one specific app? Well, you're also talking about the reason that like something like Nike Sparks Academy failed. You know, they tried to bring in a bunch of people and try to bring these high level modalities when they probably would have done better just putting a basic strength and conditioning program, like showing kids how to run fast and getting them to lift weights instead of trying to be so jiggy. I mean, I went up to Nike when they uh, launched a lot of that. And I just remember thinking like, dude. You guys are taking. You guys are trying to extrapolate training programs for younger athletes based off of what you're doing with the world's best, and mm. uh, it just, you know, and like I think this goes back to uh, as people kind of ascend the rung, I could say, you know, get to this kind of more specific, you know, higher level of training. I think the training needs to become more detailed, and maybe things like having some technologies available to talk about bar speed or HRV or all these things uh, become more apparent. But I think for just a basic. Uh, and majority of the world, like they just need to be able to do something that's a little bit harder the day, you know, uh, the next day than it was the day before, you know, whether yeah. it just be, you know, progressive overload of weight or effort or whatever it looks like. And I yeah. think, um, you know, people really have no concept of what it is to work hard and really well, kind of push themselves within the training, like almost like push to that level of accommodation. Like I hear constantly, oh, you know, the law of accommodation, you know, Westside Barbell, we got to rotate, you know, bars and this. And I'm like, dude, I think you need to lift with that bar until you're fucking good with that bar. And then all of a sudden is once you get good with it, as you start seeing progress decline, then maybe think about rotating. But I mean, you look at Ed Cohen and some of the best power lifters in the world, they only, they never rotated bars. They lifted with a straight bar and they squatted. They, and they did basic primary movements. Yeah, so, like yeah. Phil hit on a really good point there, which is teasing out the difference between skill development and maintaining a specific skill. So, if I use this example, and I'll circle back to exactly what you just said about basic people, John, because I, I like that point where, okay, if you're trying to be, become better as a free throw shooter, if you practice that skill, if you try to acquire a new skill under fatigue, that's going to compromise your ability to learn that skill. Like, it's going to slow it down. And so if you're trying to get better at shooting free throws, then you should go out and shoot free throws when you're fresh and you're perfect. However, in that particular instance, Coach Wooden wanted them to be able to maintain their current set of skill while fatigued. And so then therefore you shoot those free throws when you're tired. But those are two entirely different things. They're two different goals. And so it goes back to always saying like, well, what is the real purpose of, of doing this drill? I'll get better at free throws. No, that's not a good answer. Like, what do you mean get better free throws? Oh, I actually want to improve our skill because when I'm fresh and I'm totally uh, not fatigued at all, the best I can do is shoot 40%. Well, in that case, then you need to just get better at shooting, shooting free throws because you're, you're terrible. But if you're shooting 95% fresh, but in the games, all of a sudden you go down to 50%, now the purpose is, well, maybe you're too fatigued, and so now let's practice that under a condition of fatigue. But, but that's the same thing we've been talking about. Like You have to understand the actual goal first and to really tasing that down. And so to tie that in with what you just said, I love what Vern Gambetta said about uh, long-term development of athletes when he said, okay, run, jump, throw those are your first three can you get all those down okay however long that takes a week six years whatever then you move on to squat press pull then you move on to snatch clean jerk if you want but the last part doesn't even matter the basic point is saying yes let's take these very simple movement principles execute on those things become an expert at those then move on to the next ones but it doesn't have to be overly complicated 
at those initial training phases for the vast majority of people, like we, we put a little training program in the end of unplugged, which is basically say, okay, if you're an average person and you're looking for well-rounded health, you should be able to do a little bit of strength, a little bit of conditioning, a little bit of hypertrophy, a little bit of fat loss and, and pipe or whatever things that you matter. But you just have to do these are the basics. And for the vast majority of us, we really never actually have to step outside of that, that level of specificity, unless we've got some sort of competition coming up. Uh, but the vast majority of us could just take a step back and go, okay, have I really, have I really mastered pressing, pulling and hinging? Well, every time you squat, if you hurt your back, then you haven't mastered that movement. If you can't maintain that position while under fatigue, you haven't mastered that movement. If you can't maintain that position under load, under repetition, under speed, under distraction, under having to make a choice, whatever happens to be, then you don't haven't really mastered that movement. And so there's several layers that you can get to. If you have to have a coach tell you, hey, your back's getting rounded there, then you don't understand that position. If you have to have an app that tells you, your knee is caving in. You don't understand that position. All of these things suggest you shouldn't be moving on. Like there's no reason for you to move on. Stick to the basics until we get that level of understanding until where you don't need technology or another coach to tell you what's going on. You can intuitively fill the position. And then the second level is, can you actually make a change in that position to get in the corrected position with, without having to have someone tell you or cue you? That's real movement expertise. Yeah. And, and we, to, uh, I guess, try to teach coaches and teach teachers that that exact thing, we, uh, we've we gone to the competency model. So I don't know if you're sure with this, but kind of four mm -hmm. stages of learning, unconscious incompetence, athlete doesn't know their ass from their elbow, they are asking yep. you, how was that? Then you have unconscious competence, they're realizing, uh, or conscious incompetence, excuse me, second, they realize they're doing something wrong, but they can't quite apply the coaching cue, and then we have conscious competence, meaning they're focusing so hard on the execution. And our objective, if we're working with athletes, is ultimately unconscious competence. You don't have to think about the execution of the squat, the lunge, the step, and that'll free your mind up to read and react on the field. Well, the other one um, we've seen, too, is that people are necessarily um, reinforcing movement patterns. Let's say with just like, you know, the squat, for example. Uh, we teach squat with a toes forward position because I know that on change of direction and running and any type of, uh, you know, basically lateral movement, that if I'm toes forward as I put my foot in the ground, knee over my toe, I'm, I'm dramatically stronger, faster, and more explosive in a change of direction position. Uh, we know that if all of a sudden you, your toe is out and you go to change direction, you get a bunch of force lead effect and you can injure yourself. We call that the RG, uh, RG3 effect. Um, <laughs> you know, so now all of a sudden we're using the back squat as a way to challenge posture and position with the toes forward model so that we can effectively make better athletes in terms of change of direction. And being able to explain that to people where, you know, my goal isn't necessarily to get you better at squatting. My, my goal is to get you a ton of reps with a foot position and a posture position so that when you change direction, you don't fucking hurt yourself and you can be fast. Um, you know, and I remember, uh, you know, going through when we were training for the combine and working on the 5.10.5, the, you know, the pro shuttle and then teaching the technique and thinking to myself, well, how come we're teaching this technique, but everything that we're doing here within, you know, static bilateral hip hinging, you know, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't fit within this model. And uh, I, I started looking for carryover and like offensive line plays. You go to set, you watch offensive linemen yeah. all of a sudden turn their feet and they call it stepping in the bucket where a guy turns his shoulders and gets beat around the corner. It's their inability to keep their shoulders and their hips and their feet square to the line of scrimmage and then vertical set and then be able to take on a guy. And that takes, you know, rotation within the trunk and all these, you know, skills that you develop. 
but yet we walk, uh, you know, we ask a guy to go in and you squat with his feet at 45, which is reinforcing a negative movement pattern. Um, and to me, it just seemed insane. Like I should be able to understand the movements and the positions that I need to be effective at my sport. And then I should reinforce those in the weight room because the goal in the weight room is for me to, uh, you know, hone these skills. Uh, you know, we watch this for, you know, female athletes, especially, I mean, their ability to like, you know, maintain that position when they eccentrically load into a squ- or into a jump and then not let their knees cave in, uh, you know, or uh, tear ACL. So then, you know, we do like a, just like a basic, uh, um, drop test to see, you know, day one, can you step off this and maintain position? Are you strong, strong enough, the musculature, the strength to be able to protect yourself as you get into this eccentric load. And then we use a barbell back squat to get them stronger. And like these common simple principles, which almost feels like we're taking crazy pills a lot of times, um, are just really the basis of strength training. And I think people forget why they're there. You know, I mean, if they're like you're talking about how to develop efficient movement and then be able to replicate these things in ways in the weight room. And yeah. uh, that's become like a point where I just, you know, almost like face palm slap. And you're like, dude, understand this. The goal isn't to get more, it isn't to, you know, the, the weight on the bar is just a measure of performance. It's not the end goal. There's never, I've never walked out on the field and asked somebody, hey, you know, what was your back squat? And then, uh, <laughs> when I tell them I squatted, you know, 650 pounds, all of a sudden they fall down on the ground and they don't want to play. It doesn't fucking happen like that. <laughs> yeah. So the numbers are fucking just my own personal measure of gain. They have zero uh, ability to impress anybody or help me win a fucking game. And it just, uh, you know, I just think we've kind of lost our way a little bit in terms of performance training. And I think that's what we're trying to do is bring, out, you know, bring that, me- that mentality back. How many times have you spent like 25 minutes working with a, an athlete on their, you know, jerk or power clean or something, and then they finally get it down, they're in the right positions, and then they pick the bar up the next time to go put the rack back or something or take the dumbbells off the back, and all of a sudden the back just goes completely to shit. You're like, what the fuck? You just spent 20 minutes keeping your, your, your hips and back in the right position, and then you went to clean the bar off to go home, and you just completely unfucked yourself. Like, what the hell? There was no transfer over there at all. And the so thing is, agreed, Andy. And I think the problem is that we we would like to think that we default to our better self in real life scenarios, and we don't. We default to our worst self. And if Brian was on, he would talk about breathing patterns right now. And so, exactly what you said about the, the feet being straight. Like if you, even in a, an athletic scenario, if if you're able for a particular workout to get your breathing pattern. Um, down for that so it's sustainable and you're not chasing your breath or letting it get away from you but then the rest of the day you're walking around shallow mouth breathing basically chronically hyperventilating and at night you're doing that as well it's kind of the other 22 hours the other 23 hours of the day you're not just undermining what you did right for that one hour in the gym but or in your sport but uh you're you're in fact grooving a poor pattern and that will be the bad pattern that you default to so yeah to your point i, I really like what you were saying about squatting with the feet because there has to be a wider context outside of what is going on in that squat rack yeah no i mean uh, uh crossfit tried to debate it with kelly and kelly uh who worked for me on my first seminar um you know we talked about the toes forward that, that we had used for years and um you know but the idea is and this is where people fuck that up constantly is your toes need to be straight ahead but the knees need to track over the insteps so you're effectively making like an a like an a-frame position. The problem that Kelly ran into is they started driving the knees so far outside the toe box that you know, I mean, it it's almost next to impossible to keep the big toe on the ground. I'm sure Andy could go and give us a, 
a dissertation mm-hmm. on force plates and the difference between the strength in terms of having the, the big toe on the ground and then you know lifting the big toe. So when we talk about squatting and like the ability to keep the big toe in the ground and then be able to drive the knees out but have them track over the instep so the toes forward, to me that's the most efficient position and that's by far the strongest one that I saw used over and over again and developed in what we call the universal athletic position. And I saw it in football, I've seen it in every single sport that the people that move the best or the most explosive, they change direction, usually start in that position. And, um, you know, just being, being able to drive the, the knee so far outside the toe box. And, you know, there's people that, um, uh, you know, have, you know, extremely hypermobile in that way. But, I mean, we've just over the years just seen people cook that position so badly. And then it ends up with uh, knee impingements, hips, and problems. And we try to bring them back. And they're like, well, shouldn't I drive my knees out? I'm like, yeah. Hmm. To where? To, to what end? Yeah, you want to drive your knees out. But, like, they're, you know, not to the point of ridiculous. Like, they need to track over the insteps. So, I mean, it, and it goes back to the other one we fought, like, um high bar low bar back squats that was another one that drove me fucking crazy yeah being like okay what's a high bar and we've seen everybody i mean i saw it to the point where a guy had it so far up on his neck i thought he was going to break his neck and i've seen it down so low that it was somewhere in the mid back yeah. and uh, we got to the point where i'm like i don't give a shit about your high bar and low bar i want to put it at the base of the traps i need landmarks and um you know we've run into it too where we talk about you know hey what, what should your stance be like uh, you know, somewhere outside your shoulder width on a, let's say on a squat. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing people with their feet way too far outside the shoulders. So mm-hmm. I think we, uh, we kind of get into problems a little bit without giving specific context and, um, you know, actual practical application for this stuff. So yeah. just, well, there's a difference between what we, when this is science, this is training, this is discussion. It doesn't really matter, but there's a difference between individual truth and communicating to the masses. And any, anytime you go from one end of that spectrum to the other end of the spectrum, you're going to lose some things. And so when people like Kelly say something like, hey, drive your knees out. Okay, fine. Is that individually perfectly true? Well, no, as you just explained. But however, if we look at the vast majority of people, are people's problems generally because their knees are too far out or too far in? Well, most people's problems are they're too far in. So as a message to the masses, that's not the worst thing ever. Well, when you drill down and you want to hammer somebody on something and you think that that applies to every single case, well, then that's your fault for interpreting it that way. Um, if you pinned him down and you gave him an hour to say, well, tell me exactly your thoughts on the knee position, I guarantee he wouldn't just say, oh, knees out, done. Like, he would have gone into all those details. And so that's what we have to stop. Like the, the general problem is, I'm getting a bit off track here, but it's people being so fucking concerned with being right. And it's like, oh, I saw this on the internet. I want to hammer them to show them I'm smarter than them. It's like they made a, a 140 character tweet like instead of assuming that they left out everything, how about you just compliment what they did include, which is to say, hey, this is a good message moving forward. Most people are knees are inside there. Like that's the problem with all of sports science and nutrition is we're so concerned about showing the rest of the world how much smarter we are than somebody else that we have to make these chippy little comments that actually don't move the thing forward. They don't help anybody. And they add massive fucking confusion to the general people just so like, dude, I just want to live a little bit better and eat better food and hit my goals. Like, God damn it. Yeah, I just want to live a, a non-crazy person life. I mean, I, I've never yeah. in my life seen people argue about minutia more than I have on the internet. And, uh, I mean, it, like, you know, and uh, Rob Wolf is by far one of my favorite people for this is, uh, you know, like, people want to, like, argue with him about these small points. And he's like, here's the deal, you fuckheads. <laughs> Eat real food. Yeah. Sleep. Lift some weights. Yeah. Fucking, you know, uh, sleep as much as humanly possible. Fool around with your wife. I mean, you know, or, or significant other. I mean go outside like you know get some sunlight get some vitamin d you know do some rotation we kind of go back on this thing and he's like 
That's what people have been doing for fucking since the uh, you know the eons yeah. of time. And the problem is now we have a situation where I have to consume thirty you know grams of branch chain aminos fifteen minutes after workouts after I do this, and it's like, fuck, man, like. Uh, um, but uh, you know and i'm sure you've seen this dude it's like it's almost like the the deeper somebody can go and we talk about this dude like don't go so deep like you know like come back to the light we almost lose people because they want to get tweaked out on this minutiae and uh yeah um i I almost think that you know in terms of uh marketing the the more minutiae you can create and the more kind of niche you can make something the more specific you are because you become the only one that can provide this information uh, well, that's know, exactly right. And, yeah. and, and I mean, we, we've seen it right now with like all, all the ketogenic stuff. I mean, dude, uh, like I was laughing with Tom Inklet on about this. Tom's like, dude, it's amazing. He's like, dude, like, you know, we were talking about ketogenic diets in the 80s. And then, you know, Marl was talking about it. He wrote about it. And he's like, dude, everybody's used it. Uh, you know, you can go back and look at, uh, you know, them using it at the turn of the century to, to you know, to treat uh, epilepsy. And he goes, and now all of a sudden, you know, ketone esters in here and everybody's talking about like it's this uh, this new magical thing. And I'm like, dude, there's people that have been eating low carb for a number of years. Why is it? And I, I just go back to the idea that somebody just found a new way to package it so you can pull more and more people in. And then also the idea is you create fear. Oh, carbs are evil. You know, if you eat a low carb diet, you can stay away from the evil carbs. And I'm like, dude, this is insane. Like, there's no such thing as bad foods. Like, you know, have you uh, have you guys read that fantastic article? Uh, I think it was published in 1999 by Malcolm Gladwell about like the breakdown of every single diet book ever. No, I gotta oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's something the fact talked about this. Yeah, it's something the fact of like there's a, a four step or five step process that every single diet book has ever taken step number one is like create fear yeah. step number two, create false fear step number two is and create a false solution or, and all these things and it's like, like find a bad guy he's like one of them yeah like like you have to say like this is who's to blame yeah is yeah is it the same process as creating a cult uh, yeah probably well, identical well look at look at leaders and followers you know i mean the other day i was i was talking to kenny andy kenny kane and his yeah. co-host um body and knowledge podcast amongst other things and we were talking about you know all these people you click you know follow but are the people we're following really equipped to lead us you know in any way even that language or my wife my wife noticed that and no offense if anyone's associated with rodan and fields but there was you know a, a couple of people that send you messages you know on facebook trying to be your friend the first line so on the preview you think oh it's good to hear from this person and then like come sell for me in my evil pyramid scheme. And the annual conference for this thing looked like a cult meeting. You know, it's like religious fervor. And I mean, really, even if you look at the lighting from some of these shots, I mean, they're just little cell phone pics, but it's like, this is a cult. You know, like, what are we doing here? So even the language, and I think that's a good thing that Andy and Kenny and, you know, the rest of us, we, we talk about these things like language and storytelling. So, yeah, you're exactly right, Andy. There's, um, with these books, what we're really trying to say, I mean, if we can distill unplug down, we're not trying to do that, right? Technology is the bad guy. It's like, no, it isn't. Yeah. It's about creating boundaries and also using it correctly as one tool in your toolbox to cue, to inform, and to connect what you're feeling to what's going on in your physiology. Oh, and by the way, stop just going from one indoor environment to another, like get outside, um, unplug 30 minutes a day and actually experience something, have a rich experience that's going to help retune those instincts which have been put to sleep. I mean, that's yeah. it. 
that's not, you know, we weren't trying to follow some that kind of formula with uh, that you were talking about with Gladwell, Andy. And yeah, that's a classic example. No, know, that's that actually to go even further, Phil. Like the real position of the book of the book is not that technology is the bad guy; it is that you are the bad guy. Like, you have <laughs> let know, yourself be deceived. You are in control been that way of all for these fucking things. Ever? I mean, through the beginning of history, I mean, we were our own fucking worst enemies. I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, dude, I saw it in the NFL. I, I used to say, man, in the absence of true leadership, false prophets appear. And yeah. what would happen is, is like when shit was breaking down and like people weren't like, you know, like actual like real leadership, all of a sudden people would start like making these prophecies and like, you know, uh, this just bullshit would happen. I'd be like, oh my God, here comes the fucking false prophets. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, same yeah. thing has happened in the fitness industry where, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, now it's, uh, you know, like, like you said, these cult type of situations where, you know, now you have to be in, in on this team. And if you've always noticed that uh, anytime any of these things happen, they're always on the fucking fringe and they're the extreme. I always ask, like, where's the cult for moderation? Like, yeah. Where's the guy that's like, well, common hey, sense? Uh, here's yeah, here's my common sense cult. We're gonna eat some food. We're gonna lift some weights. We're gonna sprint. We're gonna run. We're gonna get outside. We're gonna have some fun, and we're eventually gonna enjoy our lives without like having to fucking punish ourselves at every situation. So anytime yeah. that there's a you know, whenever there's a cult for moderation, you can fucking sign me up. There's a, my, my father-in-law is a middle school science teacher. And he, we were talking like uh, literally last weekend about this unit he does from Carl Sagan's book, which is the bullshit detector book. It's phenomenal if you've ever read that yeah. book. And he, he literally gives this lecture to his sixth grade or seventh grade class. That is the difference between an expert and an authority. And I, I'm like, oh my God, dude, like you just solved the internet's problems right there. Like people don't understand the difference between an expert and an authority, like an authority is somebody who looks good naked or has a lot of followers. Like an expert is somebody who actually has an expertise in that. And just because you w- lost weight one time and did one powerlifting competition, like authority does not make you. Like <laughs> you are, or expert does not make you. You're an authority. Oh, you've trained eleven clients. Fantastic. Or you did it yourself. Amazing. Like you're not an expert. Do you have a terminal degree? Do you have decades of experience working? How many athletes have you really put your throat? That's what makes you an expert. And so we have to really understand authority versus expert. I think that is a solid point I, to fucking end on. I couldn't, I couldn't up. think of a better uh, place to wrap it up at. All right, guys. So thank you very much for making time. And um, Man, it's always nice to run into kindred spirits. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, I enjoyed the book. I, you know, um, I found a little bit of irony, which I always appreciate. But uh, no, I thought it was great, and it's uh, making a great argument. So yeah, anybody listening want to check it out, it's called Unplugged. Yeah, and uh, Phil also assisted uh, with Game Changer, and it's a, this is a textbook, Phil, if I've ever read one. So I, I, I was unable to well, complete it in the past two it. weeks. I, I do love it, but I'm still going through it. Oh, okay. Uh, it's like I'm putting myself through class. I appreciate it. Um, if it so makes you feel any better, I read uh, I read Unplugged, my own book, in about two days, and I'm about three weeks into Phil's other book, Game Changer, and I'm on like page six. Yeah, it's dense. <laughs> it's oh come on, guys, don't say it's unreadable now, Andy. No, that sounds no, 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 no. Phil, Don't you have a whole series of romance novels too? <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't kids. it? He's like, hey, I'm also the uh, author of the uh, Passion of the Stone series of six books. It's kind of like which is Lord so great that it's self-published. <laughs> well, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings meets uh, uh, Twilight meets um, Game of Thrones. Ooh. So solid meets like Clueless. Who <laughs> 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 wouldn't, wouldn't read that? Who yeah, wouldn't read that book? And lifetime. Lifetime or Hallmark and Hallmark are squabbling over the rights right now for the movie adaptation. 
I couldn't think of a better way to summarize who Phil White is. That's just epic. <laughs> well, Sap the tree. Podcast. Who is Phil White? Ooh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and we could literally probably te- keep talking for the next six hours. So uh, we'll we'll have to set up a part two down the road. And um, guys, we appreciate it. What are what are the internet handles? What are the Instagrams? What do, where can our people follow you? Go uh, you can find you can find Phil at Philip the Great uh, uh, everywhere on the internet. Okay. Uh, no, he can tell you himself. Um, but the book Unplugged Evolve from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness. It's Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all that stuff. Um, you can check out my website, uh, andygalpin.com, where I take basically all my university lectures and, and put them up for free, give them away. And then my social is just at uh, DR Andy Galpin. So pretty easy to find. Good man. Yeah, just read Andy's stuff. You don't need to read mine, but if you really want to torture yourself, most things backslash Phil White books and coincidentally, philwhitebooks.com. So it's not just a clever name. Okay. All right. That's what his romance is. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's got some exclusive romance novels on that that website. (laughs) You want to check it out. All right. Only ebooks. We're clear. (laughs) Thanks, guys. uh, That's funny. Uh, yeah. so Fullerton huh man we just moved yeah yeah we were out in Newport so they moved out here to Austin which uh, I'll tell you it was an upgrade oh man I would I would switch places with you in a heartbeat dude it's great I uh, um, yeah I was so glad to leave Orange County and I had to go back probably about two oh no about a month ago as I was sitting on traffic on the 405 coming from LA out oh. to Orange County and I was you know Fuck. on the 405 for three and a half hours I thought to myself Thank God I don't fucking live here anymore. Dude, I've been pestering the shit of my wife to move out and hang out with Phil. Like, I keep yeah, showing her. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. In our little Colorado town, the idea of the traffic jam is when a big male elk, and they're like 14-year-old boys running around, you know, mating season, like all testosterone up, but with big horns. You know? Where, uh, uh, that, Phil, uh, you're in uh, Colorado, where at? I'm in Evergreen. Okay. So, yeah, just, just up the hill from Golden. Yeah. So yeah, nine nine thousand feet, far enough away that it feels like Brian in the middle of nowhere on his seven acres in Oregon, but um, but not quite. Nice. Yeah, no, we got uh, we got sixteen acres out here in Austin, and uh, pretty killer, nice. man. We love it. So I um, I'm, ne- I'm never going back. So. Don't torture Andy. He's got to teach. He's got well, to do Andy, science no, somewhere. Yeah, You're going to set up a lab him. for him out there. You... There's a there's there's space back there, right in that back corner, back right corner for a lab of some kind. The gym here, and then uh, down the hill is uh it is our office space, which is like a, a barn that we converted in. So no, it's a it's a good spot, man. And um, not not nearly the traffic and the bullshit and the cost of living is dramatically more reasonable than living in California. I remember just like stupid shit. Like my wife went to, I'm like, how much were all those groceries? And she like told yeah. me, and I'm like, wow, that's, there's way more bags than we got. Like just basic stuff like that is kind of funny. Yeah. So cool. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. I got a roll to this charity deal. See you. Thanks. Okay, man. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Cheers Great guys. Um, this will come out in a couple of weeks. I'll email you. Uh, we'll love to send you some power athlete shirts, gear, coffee. Uh, so I'll follow up. And then if all I need is sizes and mailing address and we'll, we'll get you your gear guys. So well, guys, thanks kind for of your you. time. And thanks for, yeah. Thank you for your time today. Great conversation. Yes, guys. Have fun. All right. I'll be in touch. Thank you again. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find the book unplugged online, wherever books are sold. 
and take a gander at andygalpin.com where he's reportedly giving away his lectures, which to me sounds like the CrossFit football business model. And aspiring novelist and current author Phil White can be found at philwhitebooks.com. Until next time, bye!